Okay, well, on my next episode, I'm very excited to have Tracy from Deploy Hub to come on and talk about a topic that I actually haven't yet really covered. I mean, we've we've kind of skirted around it in various episodes, but I haven't really covered, which is around GetOps and also some open source initiatives. But before I have her introduce herself, we'll just want to remind you that this podcast is both on wherever you listen to your podcast, but also YouTube. So if you are interested, I know I have this thing where I'll listen to radio stations and and get attached to the personality on the other side of it. And then I see what they look like and I'm always surprised. So if you're curious what I look like and you want to have that uncomfortable surprise, go to YouTube and you can also get access to um, other resources there. Why don't we begin? Um, So Tracy, please introduce yourself. Absolutely. Well, first, Chris, thank you for having me. I I love doing these. I love doing geek out sessions. I think they're a blast. Um, I am Tracy Reagan. I am the CEO of Deploy Hub. I am also the community director for an open source project called Ortelius. And I am on the board of the CD Foundation. So I'm yeah. around. You'll see me. <laughs> yeah. So Tracy is around. I've I've been following Tracy for quite a while in the in the DevOps market, and um, I think we met because my session was rejected at <laughs> some event. But whatever it is, um, definitely a part of the DevOps personality. So why don't we start? Because I promised at the beginning talking about GetOps. Now, GetOps is one of those terms that. I feel like I've heard two distinct definitions from two separate industry vendors. So we better start with the definition first. Absolutely. Um, and I think that GitOps, the term can be misused. And I feel like it's going to get out of control in terms of what it is. But at its core, just go to the core. GitOps is operations by pull request. That's what it is. Nothing more, nothing less. You have a GitOps operator. The GitOps operator, you know, pulls the Git repository where your deployment YAML file is, and it always updates. So it's operations by pull request. It's simple and clean. It's I not anything more than that. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I love if you can fit a definition in, in a short sentence. So this gets to an area in, in my last episode I also talked about it where we're kind of in this age where automation and scripting everything, everything is code, is somewhat of an assumption. And is that true for GitOps? Well, I think it I I, I think there we're in a weird place right now, right? We want to automate everything, but we don't want to get rid of our scripting. So you know, we talk about being declarative instead of imperative, but think about it this way. Sure, you can declare things in your script, but as soon as you check your script in to, to get, it's imperative, <laughs> right? Because you can't change it, but that's the reason why you want to check it in to get so that the GitOps operator can always know exactly what it's looking at. But when you, you know, I think in terms of Git, GitOps scaling and in, in terms of just multiple clusters and being able to scale to thousands of clusters. It scales great. But from the human side, I think it struggles with scaling because if you are managing everything with a YAML file and every environment has different configurations and you're 
trying to go into a microservices world where you're managing, I don't know, let's just make it easy, 100 microservices, and you have four environments, you're managing 400 YAML files if every environment has a different configuration. So it's really about configuration management, right? That's really at the core of what we're talking about. And how do you how do you structure that configuration management where you can have what the GitOps community likes to call a single source of truth? So we're just in a we're in a flux to use another GitOps term. <laughs> we're in a flux here. We're, we've got to figure out how to do both, and we have to be able to do both well. Yeah, and that's what I'm curious about. Is it an all or none proposition? You mean GitOps or not? Is right, right. Like, you do, do you have to be all in or can you? Kind I of think that I think we can kind of be in because we have not seen if you look at this, just the continuous delivery pipeline, we have not seen every company move um, to a CD pipeline where they're updating all the way to production. It's generally dev and test and production goes off and does their own thing. And I feel like that will be that will continue. That's that's a broken part of continuous delivery that we need to fix. And the reason why we haven't fixed it is because oftentimes the production side of the house have they have different requirements from doing deployments and dev and test. They may have an audit trail that they need to track. They they may need more automation than what GitOps can offer. So there is a, in other words. Production has simply requirements that GitOps may not, at what we we know of GitOps as today, may not may not meet. So all and is you might all have, is not actually a choice. <laughs> all is not. Yeah, an it's <laughs> all is not. A, yeah, yeah. It, so I think that we're going to see Dev and Test embrace GitOps faster and more um, aggressively than production. And production may. I think that most production companies or most production teams, I should say. When they are looking at infrastructure, they probably are more likely to use GitOps for infrastructure as code uh, than they would at the application level. Because the application level, they don't trust necessarily the application teams. They are highly risk averse and they want to know exactly what's going out and what's going on and they want to own those scripts and that process themselves. So while we still we talk about this progressive delivery. We talk about continuous delivery and continuous deployment. There's still a wall between test and production. It may not be an eight-foot wall. It might be a four-foot wall, but it's still a wall. So where, where that wall breaks down, can GitOps do that? It has the ability to. But again, there are audit uh, pieces that may not be in uh, Git uh, that are obfuscated. That product, which will mean production has to move to something else. And that is a, a crime because what we need to be able to do is evolve these technologies so that the CD pipeline can be a healthy pipeline and a repeatable process regardless of the environment. And that's really what we have to get to. Yeah, which gets to the next uh, area that I'm super fascinated about and I think GitOps addresses. But you did say something earlier, which was the human and certainly that is a variable in all this stuff, no matter how, how much us techies want to automate everything. So the area that I'm actually really fascinated with that I think is largely unaddressed in both IT and DevOps is this idea of operational drift. So things from a developer box configuration settings somehow eking their way into production and then being the source of issues or just the fact that you don't have parity. You don't have parity from dev 
to test, to, to prod, and even your various uh, environments in prod or regions. Do you feel like GitOps helps address that challenge? No, that's still a human thing, right? It worked on my machine. <laughs> now it worked in my cluster. <laughs> <laughs> that's still a human thing, right? You, because you could take a, um, a YAML file, update the SHA, and then push it into production or push it into test and say, oops, I just overrode the, I used the wrong YAML file, right? I, I merged it with the test environment repository, but when I did that, I brought over the, the incorrect uh, variables. And therein lies the human issue, right? Somehow, I, th I think we have to have, you know, and at Ortelius, we're looking at solving this problem. We, we think that the GitOps strategy is a very, very strong strategy for scaling on the cluster side of the house, but not on the human side of the house. It's an ideal way to be able to have that YAML file in, a, in, a, in an environment repository that's always being polled, right? It's a pull, a pull process, but somebody still has to push it and you can still make mistakes when you push it. And humans make mistakes, it's just hard. I hate, I shouldn't say I hate, that's a strong word. I struggle with Git. I can, I can, I can mess things up all the time in Git. You just ask my team, they're like, oh, don't let Tracy touch it. <laughs> it's like, I can destroy Git. Um, so it's a human aspect that we have to fix. Um, we fix that through automation, right? So there's the, there we get back to our first question about scripting versus automation. We have to do both. We have, in, in the GitOps world, we have to get to a point where we can automate the update and the push of a, 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 a Kubernetes deployment file into an environment repository that the GitOps operator can act upon. That's where we really have to go. And I think once we get there, the risk averse production team um, may embrace it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it and this is true in the security world too. It's it's a journey. I know that, uh, and I think that's part of the fun too. But also the frustration. It's it's definitely a journey, and and you're you're balancing two things that are somewhat competitive with each other. But um, having a north star, which you just defined, is very very good. Um, I do want to dig into Ortelius, but before I do, one more question related to GitOps. How does it interact or intersect with serverless? Oh, well, like Lambda functions and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that, you know, of course you can, I, I don't know if you could use a GitOps operator to update a Lambda function. That's a good question. I've never, never even thought about it before Great. because you just th normally think about using Lambda, it's gonna do right. its own thing as opposed to pulling all that out and putting it into uh, a, a, a file so that a GitOps operator could operate off of it. Um, Ortelia supports Lambda uh, in, in, in a similar way, but we still rely on Lambda to do the work, right? Right, right. So I don't know if that, I don't know how that would look. I have never played with it. I've never spoken to anybody. And so that's, a, you stumped me on that. Yeah, I, I, I try to create problems that don't yet exist. That's my, that's my <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> I've always, I, I've always wondered about Lambda and how you've got all this stuff that you're kind of entering manually into this environment, right? So how do you track all of that? And which you can, you can export it and you can check it in, but I don't know if a GitOps operator would work off of it. Right. Great. Well, actually it makes me wonder another thing where, where did, would it intersect with something like Terraform? 
Terraform, if you think about it, is the first Terraform and Rancher. These are infrastructure as code is really what started the conversation around GitOps. When we're talking about infrastructure as code, that is the that was where we really began this conversation about taking the infrastructure and de declaring it in a script and then using a GitOps operator or an agent to update it based off the script. So that was the beginning of the story, actually, in my opinion. It started with infrastructure and it has grown into application. And I think that in terms of, I say think because I don't know, I'm not a, a operations person. But when you're talking about infrastructure changes, you're not changing infrastructure at the same rate as applications. So when you talk about infrastructure as code and having it defined in a file, you're not going to be changing that all day long. Like you might microservices being moved into a cluster. So at the beginning, using infrastructure as code and having an operator or an agent that might live outside the, the, I think Terraform, when you first define it, I don't know if they have an agent that lives outside that uses the infrastructure code then to build your cluster. But that is where we began this conversation. Yeah, and it makes me think about there. there is also this relationship, and this is true just as DevOps has evolved in CICD, that there is this relationship between frequency of change and kind of how the tooling operates. I know a lot of my sessions, I, I talk about this, this, the Billy Bob server, which was named the Billy Bob server because that's a server that every three weeks always had a, some sort of issue and you restarted it and you deployed your monolithic app. But it was this very static thing that you not only did you not touch it for or update it you really didn't want to like it was like just don't don't touch it <laughs> yes and i know those days the, <laughs> the world of software was like we want we want to move fast we want to make changes quickly and and see the outcome of those changes and so the tooling has has come along with that so that's great yeah that's the pets and cattle discussion right billy bob was a pet and when kubernetes came along billy bob just became cattle and destroying something and bringing it down and bringing it back up from scratch shouldn't be that scary. Right. And that is the, in essence, that is the shift we're going through. I used to tell people, if you want to freak out a developer, delete the binaries that they just created in their build. <laughs> because they probably won't know how to recreate them. And they're like, I worked all night to do those, right? And yeah. as we grew around CI, we got better at that. It was less likely to freak out a developer if you deleted all their binaries. Because right. we started adding repeatability and we started adding uh, more higher frequency. And, sort of, and we had pets and cattle and builds. You, they literally treated those build binaries like, like, like pets. Heaven forbid you break them down. And now that basic concept, different but basic, still the same concept, has turned into everything, the data center. I think the only thing that we are persistent around is data, right? The database. And even that's getting broken down into yeah. a poly database instead of a mono. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, the capabilities that are coming out there. But also the the explosion of databases as a service and um, what is what does Mongo call there? I forget what they call it, but it's it's interesting how they're trying to take that big heavy monolithic thing but make it integrate with the nimble GitOps and in CI/CD stuff. So let's yeah. talk about Artilius. And I'm actually yeah. I 
I didn't, I've heard of the project, but I didn't dive into it much until um, just before the call. And, and there's some capabilities in here that I'm really fascinated with, but why don't you first just give us a description of what the project is? Sure. So let me tell you what, who Abraham Ortelius was. Abraham Ortelius lived in the uh, mid 1500s. And he was a really cool figure because he was pretty much one of the first I would call him one of the first open source kind of evangelists. And what he did was he went around to all of the neighboring countries that were creating maps of the world and said, let's bring them all together and create a theater of the world. Let's create the first world atlas based on all of the input that everybody has from what we think it looks like. That's who Abraham Ortelius is, and he's known now for the person who created the first world atlas, even though all he did was compiled it together in a, in a single in a single map based on the input from all of these cartographers. And he had them all sign the maps in different places. So if you look at the original, you'll see the contribution that that, that created. I use the name, we use the name Ortelius um, as the project name because what Ortelius is doing is mapping a cluster. And it's mapping all clusters. So Ortelius is called at the point in time, if you think about it in a CD pipeline, when a new container has been registered. If a new container has been registered in our world, that's a release candidate. We immediately grab the information about that, uh, that container. We grab the SHA, the digest, and we start tracking its versions. We also track what we call a logical application. So when an application team goes to define their application package, they use Ortilius to, to declare what packet, what microservices they're using. And anytime a micro, that microservice is updated, we track that and we create a new version of the application. Now let's think about what we used to do in monolithic and how it relates. In monolithic, what we did is a CI step. When something was checked in, um, or on some timed basis, we would pull that code out, merge, pull the code out, compile it, and link it. At the link step is when we made all the decisions about what was going to be included in that binary, and we put it all together, and we made sure somebody didn't come along and delete it because we were, it was precious to us. In a microservices world, we don't do a link step. In a microservices world, we just have a, comp we just have a component, and we publish a component. So what Artilius is doing is tracking anytime a component is updated, it's going to track who is going to, it's going to impact. And we do that because the application teams told us that they're using it. So we're taking a relational database and putting it on a versioning engine so that anytime a microservice is new, we go and we grab that information and then we look at its blast radius. We say this microservice is being consumed by these six applications. So, hey, the CD pipeline, why don't you re-execute the, the, the testing workflows of all of these applications because these are the ones who are impacted. So in essence, what we're doing is we're tracking a, above all clusters, we're tracking the configuration a single microservice update uh, makes to, the app, to all the applications that consume it. Lots of questions. <laughs> So the first one that comes to mind is it, I feel like this could fit nicely in with the roles of SRE and a practice of resilience in a way as they think about onboarding new services. I know 
at, at Splunk, if we're going to onboard a new service, our SREs are, are a step in that process, making sure that that service is visible. There's, there's, it can be discovered. Um, do you see it being used by SREs or? That is primarily that? who our, that is who our customer okay. is. It's SREs, um, chief architects who are really trying to build out a domain driven um, design for an SOA. And they want to say, we are going to have these services, let's say it's an online store. We have, we have services for purchasing. We have services for shipping. And within those services, that, that grouping of that domain, we have you know, a cart service. We have a you know, customer information service. So what we do is we allow a, a microservice developer to publish their microservice to a domain and application teams then can consume it. So it is creating a, configure, a microservice configuration catalog that contains the ownership of that microservice, the helm chart that should be used, the key value pairs that should be used, and then we track the changes for it over time every time a new, ver new service has been registered at a container registry. And then as soon as that's been registered, we're like, oh, okay, now the, 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 the candy store has to be updated. The hipster store has to be updated. Everything that's consuming that service now has a new version. And the same way as we would if we ran a build. Because if, in the old world, if our candy store needed to use the cart service, we would have compiled and linked it. And the new world, it's, it's done at runtime. So right. we are tracking that, we're tracking that logically. So that when the cart service is updated, we know that the, the hipster store and the candy store and the toy store all have to be updated at the same time. They, they all get a new application version number. Yeah. So I don't know if this term is widely used anymore. You, you would know better than me. I know about two years ago, we would talk about contracts and contract testing. So relationship between services. I feel like this also kind of automates that the insights and the action around the idea of that services have a contract with the rest of the service ecosystem. You know, testing, con we don't manage to, uh, those contracts, but it has a similar um, feel to it. The difference here is in the monolithic world, the application teams were aware when they had to redo a build because the library that they consume changes. This, in this new world monolithic, you are unaware. So in our world, we would be able to say, this microservice has been updated. You have a contract with, uh, with these three application teams. You need to notify them. And we're, we're allowing them to, be, uh, to track that. Then on the, that's on the SRE side. Then there's another aspect on the um, uh, production side. And there are other tools coming on the market that are catalog tools that are specific to production and um, managing like, an, uh, like service level agreements. And those are all about who owns a microservice. So let's say our hipster store broke. Or we get a phone call. We're on the support team. And the person says, I can't save my data. First thing you're going to ask is what version of the application are you running? In a microservices world, unless you're tracking that, you have really no clue <laughs> because it really isn't a logical application or physical application. So what we're doing is we're allowing the support person to say, oh, there still is a logical application. I'm going to go look in Ortilius and I'm going to see what may have changed since the last time it was released. Oh, I can see that the cart services was was updated, and that's probably what's causing the problem. Now I need to. Now all I have to do is say, hey, I let me look at the cart service, and I can see who owns it, and I know who to notify. 
And that sounds insane that we have that kind of a problem. But in the old world, the application team, we just said we opened a ticket and we passed it to the application team. In the new world, the application is an application with a small a, not a big A. And it's a microservice. So how do we know that that microservice is what we need to, that, that microservice developer is the reason why that the application stopped working. So we're not the um, only catalog out there, but we are the only catalog that is tracking them across all services. And we're not running in a cluster. We're being called as a point of connection right when the, uh, it's been a new container has been registered. And then we go out and do all that automated configuration management so you can see what the blast radius is going to be if you indeed deploy it. Does the container register? And then once it's deployed. Sorry. No, we, we don't, we're not a container registry ourselves. So we integrate with like Docker. That's what I, I was going to ask. Wherever, whatever, yeah. Yeah, we don't, we don't need to be that. We just need to have a pointer. Do you and feel like- to be triggered. Do you feel like people used um, service meshes in a similar way? So service meshes are really interesting, um, this whole cloud native world. And I think it's going to, we're going to see more and more service mesh implementation. It's new. So, and so are microservices. Um, we would have the ability to, for example, pat, so we could interface with service mesh in the future to say, uh, this is going to be like really out there, but I'm just going to tell you anyway, we're going to get rid of dev test and prod environments. Let's just assume that we could use, we could tell service mesh that the developer wants to deploy a new version of a microservice into the cluster, right? And we could use service mesh to say, request route this based on a, uh, on a, uh, a developer group and service mesh is going to manage those transactions for us. So service mesh is something that's running in the cluster that we would want to start talking to. So we could Got pass it. it that. Now, I, I have said this before to people that maybe someday we won't have to have all these dev test and prod environments and that four foot wall we talked about will completely be demolished. And they oftentimes go, that's never gonna happen. Um, I was at a, a meetup about a year ago before COVID uh, and a they were presenting Spinnaker. And the person said, he showed how they implemented Spinnaker and they said, now, we did something that probably is controversial. Most people won't want to do, and we're thinking about going all the way to production with it. We are now managing dev and test in the same cluster, and we use Service Mesh and 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 Spinnaker to control who can see a particular microservice and who's executing a particular version of a microservice. That is where that's going to get really cool, because we then it's not a matter of redeploying; it's a matter of of rerouting right uh, they're yeah. immutable anyway right you can have as many services as you want in this massive cluster and they're immutable so they're not going to go away it's just a matter of how do you know what collection what what we should be executing for dev what should be executing for test and heaven forbid get it wrong from prod but that's where service mesh is going to really grow i think that's what we're going to see it, it's it's doing request routing and we need to leverage it in every way we can possibly do so yeah, and I wonder if feature flagging is going to do something similar at the the code level, give more freedom to putting code out there without the fear of, or less fear of it breaking things. We're, we're all pivoting on this. I think, so if you think about it, what a microservice is, it is a feature. Um, but when it comes to front-end design, I think that fleet feature flags will still be part of the, the, the front-end um, container. 
that will still use the, uh, tools like, like a LaunchDarkly. But when it comes to the microservices that are supporting that front end, um, your microservice itself is a feature. So which microservice do you want that version of the application to, to run against? Yeah, that makes sense to me. So let's finish it out. Tell me what's next with uh, Artilius and also tell me what you're excited about in 2021 uh, DevOps. I know you're going to be doing a ton of sessions this year. Uh, if, if you're feeling a little bit like I am, I'm totally over virtual events. I'm over it, but I do them, but I'm, I'm not a big fan. I'm ready to, I would pay to get in a TSA line at this point, but yeah. I would help. too. <laughs> I'm I am so looking forward to seeing people in person. It's been a pretty lonely year, but in terms of DevOps, um, there are a couple of things that I'm pretty excited about. I am very excited about, uh, events an event driven CD pipeline. I really like Kepton. I think it's a really uh, interesting way to solve the bigger problem around interoperability in the CD pipeline. It's a better way to create declarative pipelines. And for us on the Deploy Hub and the Ortilia side, we wanna be able to start assessing the risk value of microservices. The CD Foundation just started an events working group. Uh, they're going to start working on uh, really considering what should be in a control plane, what the protocols will be. Uh, and it, I, real, I do believe it will uh, disrupt the way we do CD today, and it will be the way of, of doing CD in the future. I'm excited about GitOps. Um, Ortelius will be doing some integration for GitOps to try to solve that human side of the problem. Remember, we're a catalog of all the metadata for a deployment so we can generate a YAML file. And now we just need to create an automated way to create the, the uh, to uh, create a pull request so that a human doesn't have to do it. Once they register their container, we can take, we can take the SHA number and we can push it across, update the information, check it in the correct environment repository. I'm excited about that because I think GitOps is a, a strong contender for the way continuous deployment will be done in the future. So those are the two things I'm kind of betting on.